Hello, hello, governor. I will give you a hundred dollars if you do that to a real lay person in London when we go. I'm not trying to get in any fights at any, <laughs> at any pubs, at anything, you know. But um, yeah, we're going to England. Yeah, in like a month. That classic country we know and love. Yeah, um, the United Kingdom. The one with the warm <laughs> beer and the bad food. Actually, you know what? My favorite type of beer in the whole world yeah. is British beer. Just some like warm, tasteless thing you get in like it a basement. It is not tasteless. Uh, some Excuse you. Basement with like I'm like. <laughs> My, if I had hackles, they would be ri- like rising right now. I'm so angry at uh, you, even man. just for saying that. <clears throat> Maybe we can like watch us a football match. Yes. Are they called? Is that what that's what they call yes. them? Yes. Right? And yeah. if you want to be real slick about it, you can call it footy. Do you think we have any British listeners? Yeah, we do. Do we? Actually, yeah. Maybe we're like, yeah, we'll have to develop a little bit of a... We have... We across have, the pond following, which is good because we're like a balloon, you know? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. They don't know what that is. No. Not, I, they're when they're I not had very those... smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't... Loons don't live over there, Eric. That was Eric. a joke. Stop it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. We're going to London next month. We're going we're, to the London Book Fair. We're going to the London book fair mm-hmm. folks uh we're very excited to be doing that it's going to be a good time we're going to get to see what all the pre- i mean most american presses send people and most um you know obviously we'll get to see all the kind of the british presses but really the reason you and i are going um is to kind of meet rights people right yeah like that's sort foreign of foreign rights yeah like the idea with this sort of conference is that it's a great place to meet other agents who can help you sell your projects into territories that you are not familiar with, right? Yeah. That's kind of a fair way to put well, it. Well, and like just the way that North America is our home territory, uh-huh. their home territories are yeah. the countries that they live in. And <laughs> Great point. Thank you. Well, <laughs> you ate too much chocolate before this episode. I did, yeah. Um, and and so the point there is that hopefully we can sell our books that mm-hmm. we've signed and found and refined yep. um but in those markets hopefully for translation sometimes not yeah sometimes not do you and this will be like uh i mean this isn't really planned as one of our big topics for the day but i assume as we kind of get ready for london this will be something we bring up a bit more but what's your fast take on how your categories fit or translate into like a british market like do you have a sense of like you know as you talk about like ya or like romance stuff does it feel how is it different in you know in england you know well, than it is here i actually have several books with uk yeah. publishers specifically in science fiction and fantasy sure. um they're very very good at that they're also i mean the thing is is that the uk market it's just smaller but it's kind of the gateway to the rest of europe yeah um and so i feel like they're probably on the whole uh, better read than than the United States. I think that's pretty safe to say. I think yeah. that's pretty safe to say. I also think that they're maybe um, their tolerance for kind of that literary voice is higher. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's not to say that the blockbusters don't you know go gangbusters mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm actually less interested in the British territories than I am like learning what's selling in Romania. Yeah. and like right. I have um, an unkindness of ghosts has been published in Hungarian, and I really like want to talk because it's basically a novel about the like black experience as as told through like yeah. generations of colonialism right. and like the sl- and slavery and things yeah. like that and it's very like it's science fiction but it's couched in the United States and I am so curious about why people in Hungary like absolutely wanted to read that and I don't know anything about it like maybe there, there is some beautiful cultural context that that aligns those two interests very strongly. I don't know. That's fascinating. I mean, I think like even just talking um, to editors in the United States, and one thing that happens a lot for some reason, and maybe this is true in other, but it's definitely true in like academic style nonfiction, mm-hmm. like history and science. A lot of the editors are British for whatever reason. There's like a lot of people who you know worked as an editor in Britain for a while, and now are here at whatever press and. Every time I talk to them, they really kind of draw a line between 
well, this is something that feels very, you know, it feels very American, so I wouldn't mm. be the best editor for it. Or vice versa, you know, like, it feels, at least in nonfiction a lot of the time, like, um, there's sort like, maybe the way I want to phrase it is, it feels like there's not much faith in either like in either demographic being interested in what's going on in the other. It's you also know? very important that all of the American feeling novels have ranch dressing in them. <laughs> yeah. That is our culture. That's key. <laughs> it's key. Um, yeah, but anyway, so we'll probably, as we kind of get going, as we, you know, what, we're a month out now. That's exciting, yeah, right? we've got some wow. good meetings planned. Um, yeah. I know that we have a day where we're basically just going to walk the floor which is the size of a football field yeah. and just meet as many people yeah. as possible and talk to as many people before we drop it'll be fun we'll take pictures we'll <clears throat> do some stuff on it we'll definitely maybe we'll do like a special episode or something we'll try to bring you the london book fair to the extent that we can dear yeah. listener it'll um, be i think i think uh, at least i will be investing in that that global phone plan yeah, so exactly. i can you know so you guys won't miss out on my takes. Maybe I won't just because I hate being connected to the internet at every possible opportunity. But you're gonna be um, with me. I am gonna be with you. So I guess that's that's one thing. But <laughs> we should say this opening bit has gone on way too long. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. So um, today is February. What's the tenth or the eleventh? Eleventh. Eleventh. Um, it's Valentine's Day week, folks. Oh my goodness. Uh, oh my goodness. Yes, forget? I forgot. <laughs> what are you doing for Valentine's gonna, Day? Well, my wife listens, is a friend of the podcast. I would never reveal Is she going to listen before the 14th? I don't know. I have no idea what episode she's on, Laura. Um, sometimes I'll be driving her car and she'll be, like, her phone will be in the side and I'll, like, turn the engine on and suddenly it'll be, like, my voice piping through the speakers. It's very alarming. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, we're going to talk about a few different things, mostly grammar. Um, but before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown, huh? Yeah. So, um, if, in case all of you are wondering, uh, we will probably be getting a pizza and watching probably the Americans for Valentine's Day. <laughs> Um, that is, that is our, that is my husband and I, that is our, uh, yearly tradition of watching something that is very unromantic. We started with the Sopranos, moved our way into, you know, all the way You through. don't think, hold on, hold on, hold yeah. on, hold on. You don't think the Americans was romantic? I mean. I think it's incredibly romantic. It's romantic insofar as it's two people who are forced together and forge a very, very deep connection and have to, like, that take care of each other. That sounds romantic to me. Well, sure, but, like, there's also, you know, torture and, like, pretending to be married to other people and yeah, stuff. well, that's just the price of modern love. Um. Whatever. Anyway, um, so just in case you were wondering about that, it probably won't be hog in the bog, though, the pizza that we're ordering. Mm. That so, is a good pizza. Sorry, Eric. Um. Uh, but anyway, the print run important things. Yeah. It is February. We have all of our January special episodes <laughs> we out. We did get them out finally. We Polar did. Vortex be damned. Can I just can I just say that mm. we were gonna be recording a second episode tonight, yeah. but it's gonna snow a whole bunch again, and so we're sending Eric home. Uh, but we finally have a cord, so just in case we get buried. We can record digitally now. We're only doing that because that happened one time. I've, if you're yeah. new to the show, last winter we did this thing where I came over. and It was we, your first time you'd ever been over at the house. Yeah. No, <laughs> that that is actually, I think that's true. Yeah. I came over here to record and it started snowing mid-recording. We kind of looked out and we were like, oh, it's fine. It doesn't matter. We're on a busy then, street. So, our, yeah. so our, our street is not a good gauge for how bad the driving conditions right. are. Right. So like. We get done, we do another one of the special episodes, we do two in a row, and by the time I'm out there, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a blizzard, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the you get conditions your car are ter- stuck immediately. I, I get in the car, I'm obviously, I don't even have a coat at this point, like, it's for whatever just a reason. Ve- your tactical vest. Yeah, I didn't really wear appropriate clothing for this situation, because I didn't plan to get stuck in the road, which is a dumb thing to believe in Minnesota, because you will get stuck at some point. But, yeah, no, I... 
um, I drove away from her house, got stuck like within sight of it. Yeah. yeah. And then you drove a block and a half further, mm-hmm. got stuck again. Yeah. And a bunch of people helped me out just so that I could get stuck like a few more yards from their house, <laughs> uh, which was really good. Um, eventually made it back here. We, what, then we drank a bunch of bourbon and slept, passed yeah, out. <laughs> yeah. You slept on the couch. Yeah. And then, like, yeah. but the thing is, we had just moved. And so the mm-hmm. cat was really upset and so he just like started yelling at you all night i forgot about the cat yeah the cat did yell at me all all night night. that was really alarming i don't know why that was happening i've never forgiven him though (laughs) um so that's good anyway um so we finally got our january episodes done know that when we uh push back an episode it is not done lightly because eric's hell is like waking up in this house um i hate being out of my own house. I know. I actively dislike every second of it. <laughs> like, every minute that I am not in my home away from the world is, like, bad. It's bad. I don't like, I don't like coming over here. I don't like <laughs> going to the store. I but don't I like have doing... good <laughs> treats. You do have good treats. I will say that. Um, like, my Monday outing to you is often the only... Like, Interaction yeah, you get all week. <laughs> It's very important. <sighs> so our special episodes include yeah. a query show, a first pages critique, and then a special third episode. So those three are all coming to you yep. this month. Yep. If you would like your query or your first page critiqued or have any other questions or have suggestions for what you want that third episode to be, send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Now I think we can actually start the episode. Yeah. So the thing that <laughs> we were planning out what we were going to talk about today. And we do have, like, a, a big topic. But, like, you led with the question of, okay, Eric, what are you mad about this week? As <laughs> as we figure out what we're trying to do on the show. And the thing that I'm mad about this week to start is submission fees. I'm mad about submission fees. Tell this, me more. This weekend, I had a minute. I recently finished a short story that I workshop with my writing group, got it all ready, really, you know, pleased with it, all that kind of stuff, right? And was ready to send it out to magazines. And I took some time out of this weekend to just sort of like, you know, get it submitted to various places, do all that so I could at least, you know, have it out the door and feel like I was, you know, sending my work Mm -hmm. places in a manner I was pleased with. But, like, half the magazines I picked... And they, you know, you kind of make a wish list, right? Like you, obviously, when you're the Atlantic, the you, Paris yeah, Review, yeah, you pick the. Yep. I mean, you pick the ones you want to be published in, you know. And it's a huge number of those. We're charging, I think, like Granta, for instance. And I'm not. I'm totally comfortable telling you who they are, like, because it's, you know, they can just not do it if they don't want me to talk about them on the show. Granta was charging me four bucks. For a Don't submission they also fee? like keep reminding you throughout the year that you paid the money because they keep giving you like free yeah. articles? Yeah, they're like, thanks for giving us money. <laughs> Here's this. It's like you could have just taken my work. Yeah. So Granta charged me like four bucks. Crazy Horse, another good magazine, charged me like three fifty. Um, I'm trying to think who else was on this list. Gulf Coast, a nice fiction magazine, mm-hmm. charged me a few dollars. Harper's and the Paris Review both only take hard copy submissions. So that's postage and printing and all that kind of stuff. And you have to do a self-addressed envelope on the way back. Yeah, exactly. So you got to put postage on that and everything. It's, It's bad. And it just got me thinking, like, as I'm sitting there, you know... Sending my... I think I sent it to eight magazines. Mm -hmm. And I I paid like 20 bucks yesterday. Yeah. Which... And I was kind of talking about it online and one person responded and they were like, that's why I don't send to those places. Mm. And there it is, right? That's the whole problem right there. That's the whole game is that these places have these policies that they claim are, you know, to keep things going, to do whatever it is. They're very like... They frame it as very like forward thinking as a means of like, woe is us, we're the arts, you know? But... It just keeps. I mean, this is it not a new topic on. People out. Yeah. It does. This is not a new topic on the show, but it just felt particularly poignant, and it's worth beating this drum every chance you get. I think like submission fees are terrible. They're really bad, and you know that they're bad because a lot of the places that you would think would charge them, like there's no real correlation mm-hmm. between who would like the New York, the New Yorker, for instance, doesn't charge a submission fee. You can send them emails all the time, which of course I do. <laughs> I email Deborah. I say Deborah. <laughs> Please take my story. Deborah. I read the last issue. We know you need this story, not whatever you just published. We do this whole thing. 
It's you and Deborah have a dance. <laughs> Deborah is like, I, if someone were to like say, "Who's your celebrity crush?" Deborah Treisman. Come on. <laughs> Do but, you? Okay, great. <laughs> um. Anyway, <clears throat> the point is, like, these fees—they're—they're very—they're restrictive. You know, they keep people from submitting. They keep. In a lot of ways, they're I think they're designed to actively discourage people from submitting, or at least that's how I read like the hard copy only thing. Like you're gonna get less submissions. Which if, is so interesting yeah. coming from our line of work where it is yeah. like the number one rule. Yeah. Right? The number one rule in age of Don't tank ever take is money. Never for, yeah. take money for reading. If you if somebody is charging a reading fee, run in the and other you direction. Want, and we've said it before, but if you want that framed in like a writer way, don't pay for access. Never, yeah. ever pay for access. Um, you don't need it. It's not necessary. And if we're a necessary cog in the larger publishing machine, right, and we're we not allowed to take, we as an agent, Agents, okay. and we're not allowed to take money, uh-huh. what does it mean that there's this whole swath of yeah. publishing yeah. in another way? And, like, remember, you know, we have... We've talked multiple times on the show about Kristen Rapinian, who did Cat Person in The New Yorker yeah. and got, you know, this crazy publishing deal and, and mm-hmm. did super, super well. So, like, clearly there is – it's not just that you've been published in the Paris Review. It's mm. not just that you've been published in this place, right? Yeah. Um, what it really means is – you can only come to us if you can afford to, or yeah. you can only come to yeah. us if you can afford to because you've already had success. That's the thing. And like the reason, one of the things that I get most irritated by it, apart from like the basic economics of it, which is that if you put a fee on something, less people are going to be able to apply. Yeah. It's that you get this sense from some of these places. And if you've been in some of these like little strategy meetings, you sort of get the sense that if the reason they want the fee is to keep their slush pile down. Yeah. Like they're they're thinking oh, we get too many submissions, what should we do? Well, we should put a fee. That'll that'll lessen the number. And it's like they're perfectly willing to make their workload lighter. This isn't this has nothing to do with like the survivability of their magazine. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with it's that they simply want to just read less submissions and they're perfectly fine from that group to be selected amongst people who can pay. Do you and, know what I need to, do you know what I do when I want less <laughs> submissions? I just close to submissions. Yeah, exactly. That's what I do. Exactly. You handle yourself like a adult in a professional world. Like I don't know. It's just it's just crazy to me that you could spend like again, like I sent a story to eight eight mag, eight places this weekend. That's a very normal even light amount from what you could do. Yeah. You know. And it was it was a lot, and I'm someone who thankfully is comfortable right now. You know, I've got a job, I've got you know regular income. You know, like I can afford to send a story places. But it's crazy that that is what it takes. To, I mean, this is art. You know what I mean? Like people who don't have means make art. That's that's <laughs> you, kind of the usually a they big make part better art. Point. To be honest, like it's like it's just crazy that we're at this point where that's how things are getting enforced. And I think that again, if anyone. Like, you know, name and shame these places because reading fees, there's no reason for them. And if you if that's how um, you see the kind of logic when like a small business will say, well, if we paid our employees more, we couldn't be in business. And it's like, okay, well, then you can't be in business. (laughs) It's the same thing here. Like if you like if this if your survivability hinges on whether or not you're charging writers to even send you a story to look at that you're definitely like you know one in a hundred they'll you're accept, doing this wrong then you're not viable you're not viable and it's i don't know it's just crazy to me but. so in the in the same vein of gatekeeping <clears throat> yes. i want to transition us yes. into our larger topic for the day Please. which you and i have lots of thoughts and feelings about mm-hmm. which is the publication of benjamin dreyer's english like his his um sure his his big style guide. So Benjamin Dreyer is the long-term copy chief of Penguin Random House, mm-hmm. right? The dude that is in charge of all of the style guides and the rules and making sure that nobody looks a fool, right? You probably know Dreyer from Twitter. Um, he's very, I mean, a lot of his tweets are pretty funny. He's kind of this account that, like, I don't know, he, he kind of does this, like, popular, jokey 
copy editing shtick, right? Like he's yeah. the guy who's in Trump's replies, mm. like correcting his grammar, that kind of right. crap. You know what I mean? Like it's it's that kind of thing. So he's kind of got this public persona as the Twitter grammar guy. So Penguin Random House published the book mm. about how, you know, their copy chief thinks and approaches the world. Um, and it does something that a lot of modern style guides aim to do, which is to provide you tools and resources and guidelines to be more concise and clear. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Um, that's Or that is ostensibly the goal. That's ostensibly what they, the goal, That's right? how it's framed as like a project. The yeah. New York Times gave him a loving review. Yeah. He made it onto the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction. Yeah. For at least a week. I don't know if it's been out for a long enough for mm-hmm. two weeks to show up or even if he'll be on it. Um, but essentially there has been a lot of pushback, I think, as, as there always is when it comes to definitive grammar rules and style guides um, from people saying that it is inherently classist and is a way to keep people out of... Well, so, of kind of the upper echelons of society. Well, so let's let's unpack what you mean. There's a few dots to kind of connect here, I think. And the first is that this is this is something that has less to do with dryer and more to do with just kind of grammar as a concept with the way we sort of enforce it, the way we sort of view it as proper and not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of see where we're going with this, even as I'm sure as I frame it that way, is that, you know, when we kind of <clears throat> start enforcing rules about how you know, the proper way to speak is, and we give certain types of people the leeway and power to enforce those rules, you can end up in places where, you know, one part of the population is able to exert power over the other, or they're able to kind of use it as a signifier, right? Like you can speak proper, quote unquote, English, you know, and use it as a means of distinguishing yourself from, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do, whether they're less educated, whether they're you know, less, you know, wealthy, whatever, you know, any of these things that you're trying to different, you know, you can use grammar as a means of sorting in in a way that can be problematic, you know. Think about my fair lady. Yeah. Right. Like, you you know, you can't reach a level in society until you can essentially pass, right? Until you can do that code switching and you have the knowledge to be quote unquote correct. And so again, like this is, an issue like we've picked you know we've picked this new book by Benjamin Dreyer a sort of launch point into this topic but really this is not about him this is not about even I don't think his book it's about this kind of this larger concept and because again I I, I think he's kind of funny a lot of the time like sure. I and I obviously he's very good at, like this is not meant to be and I think that he would probably agree with most of the things we're talking about here you know so but like there's this review that the nation wrote of his book um, it's called A Style Guide for the 1%, and it's by an author named Kyle Paletta. Um, and there's a paragraph in here that I want to read, and I kind of want to get your, get your thoughts on it. Ultimately, Dreyer's English is a literary curiosity, more a coffee table conversation starter than a style guide, which means that Dreyer writes for a self-selecting audience. When he illustrates the way that incorrect usage is permitted to suitably famous authors with an anecdote about working with Richard Russo, his goal is to elicit a knowing smile, not make the reader's writing cleaner, clearer, or more efficient, which is the subtitle of the book. Um, right. And I think there's an interesting point there, which is that so often it just it just kind of gets at this idea again of grammar being a tool of power. Yeah. You know, and I just think, you know, there's and I, I think I've told this story on Twitter before, but, you know, I used to work at Oxford University Press and. It was home of the OED, right? Exactly. The Oxford like, English it's a, Dictionary. It's it's obviously a a company that <laughs> takes grammar pretty seriously. You know what I mean? You know, <laughs> like it's a company that takes language really seriously. It's one that has built a brand out of being the people with the dictionary. You know? Yeah. And I remember one time that we got this. I, I maybe I was like you know on the internet somewhere, really working hard on my job, but. I saw some quote that referred to the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, as the, I believe it was the custodian of the English language, they mm. called it. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, younger and I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, that's kind of like a nice thing to say about our product. I'll send this up to the dictionary person, you know, the person who runs, you know, the department. Maybe they can use it for publicity. Maybe they can put it on a press release or something, whatever. And so I sent it up 
And I got a really interesting response from the head of dictionaries. Uh huh. And she basically said, you know, kind of what we're going to get into here, which is that if you start deciding or if you start naming, in this case, custodians of language, if you start saying who's a, and I've seen, you know, articles that call, you know, um, Dreyer like a guardian of English, you know, mm. and he refers to himself, you know, in this book as a priest, you know, as someone who's kind of protecting a faith, you know. If you start referring to a, pro- a certain way of speaking as like protection, you can get into a space where you can other people pretty fast, and you can start to create a way where you know alternate dialects, alternate you know, I don't know, pronunciations, spellings, you know, grammar especially, you know, certain types of vernacular, you know, those can come to be viewed as lesser or unequal, and. You know, what this what this woman, you know, who ran the dictionaries department had kind of tapped into was like, that's not a place that's not a place you want to be, especially as she did and as Dreyer certainly does, if you care about English. Right. You know, like English, I think, you know, and this is probably true of any language, like it's got there's so it's breathable, you know, there's so many ways you can kind of speak it. There's so many ways the grammar kind of can flex and stuff that when you start enforcing things, you start enforcing a certain set of images and um, you know, power dynamics that I think most, I think everyone in this conversation is pretty well-meaning. It's like you can kind of get into territory that you maybe don't want to be in, you know? Yeah, I think, so I, when I hear about, you know, the the grammar wars in English, yeah. which to be clear, like we speak a language that is stolen and like knit together from yeah. basically all of the languages yeah. right like yeah. all of the indo-european and you know sure germanic etc cetera, etc cetera, right um france in like interestingly enough like the french language in france has a moderating force that decides what is correct and what is not it well, is a moderating usage like well, from the government yeah um and I remember in French class learning about this and having my professor bemoan this about how, you know, these these small instances of pulling like technological words from other places, um, it's that it's not enough that that everything is feeling very very old mm-hmm. um compare that to when i was speaking with so my my sister-in-law is a translator mm-hmm. okay she is um she is a native french speaker and a native arabic speaker okay and um also a native english speaker she speaks like everything whatever um and she translates primarily for like technical conferences she's a she's a live interpreter between french and arabic and one thing that's really interesting is she's from tunisia and lives in morocco and all of that northern africa all of the arabic spoken there is very slowly becoming different languages so all of it written in arabic is mm-hmm. it's all the same but you really have to learn the dialect yeah. Because it's so, so different and very often unintelligible between different countries. And so we're kind of in this place, we're in this time, in this moment where Arabic is becoming different languages Mm. in all of these different countries. And which is so interesting to me because she was, she's, you know, learned like France French and also is learning all of these multiple dialects of Arabic um, and it's become this really interesting point of of discussion there. Compare that with English, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't fault Dreyer one little bit. I don't for really fault having, him for much of this. Well, no, truth. for yeah. having these these arbitrary rules because that is literally his job. Like his job is to make sure that the largest publishing company in the United States is consistent and clear and that like it's his job to work with all of these other copy editors and making sure that the work that they do is is replicable and 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 consistent main mainly and i think that's vital by the way like this is not to say that there should like this idea of like grammar conventions or especially with in-house style guides especially with regard to like how a press handles grammar in house, yeah, 
that's I think really important, and it's a honestly a lost art in a lot of ways. Um, and so you know his work, especially I think, is really is really good. And to be clear, Dreyer's job is not in direct opposition to changing language and understanding that language right. is right. used to keep people oppressed right. in more than like in more than one way, right? And and understanding usage is a big part of that. What is an opposition to the fact that language is changing? is speaking to just one audience and being derisive of other ways of speaking other than the one that you naturally are coded in, which is what kind of the the author of the Nation article is getting at, just kind of that this book is very much written for the people who have already like drank the grammar Kool-Aid mm-hmm. rather than are tr- wanting to use it as a style guide, which, you know, like Dreyer can write whatever kind of book he wants. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, but I think, I think... The the way forward is not deriding somebody who who works within these rules and mm-hmm. with these within these structures and is kind of the gatekeeper because like he is the gatekeeper for Penguin Random House. Yeah, and he should be, and he should be because yeah. that's his job. But that doesn't mean he's the gatekeeper for the language. It just means he's the gatekeeper for the little little spigot that he is in control of, like the the. The value of the job itself versus the idea of classism yeah. or or gatekeeping is are, are very, very different. It's not the same like to be a copy editor than it is to like dismiss an entire group of people because they don't understand the Latinate roots of the, the words that they're using. You can get into and he's not, but you can get in you can get pretty fast into some like preserving western civilization talking points that can get pretty racist pretty quick yeah <laughs> well a lot of people yeah. use grammar to show yes. to shore up yes. their own intellectual yes. superiority and that like within their language usage is directly lined up with your class and like your reputation so the idea is that if you correct somebody else's grammar you're superior and you know better you know one of the fascinating bits of copy editing i think you know, when, like, people who are really good at it, and, you know, I'm fine at it. I do some freelance copy I'm editing. I'm absolutely and... terrible. <laughs> um, but, like, there there are creative decisions that get made. Like, if someone turns in a book, like, if, you know, if someone turned a book into Random House, and yeah. this happens a lot, I assume, that intentionally does not adhere to what you would call, you know, Chicago Manual of Style English. Um, you know, there are decisions a copy editor makes, and they're really interesting, and I think... Uh, worthwhile, you know, examinations of like how to preserve those things while also adhering to notions of consistency. Because yeah. like that's kind of like the golden rule of copy editing is if you're going to do something one way, you got to do it that way throughout the book. You know, if they, if there's a certain conjunction that a character uses that's mostly kind of made up, but that's how they talk. When that word, you know, that word has to appear like that every time it appears. You know, mm-hmm. like there's there are rules, even when the rules are kind of being made up on the fly a little bit. And so you can get you can end up with like style sheets and things that are filled with all kinds of interesting variations and you know, that can end up kind of serving as like a commentary on how, you know, different, you know, versions of English, you know, can kind of come together. I don't and know. there's a copy editor like a copy editor choice. Specifically, I'm thinking about whether or not to italicize words that are not in English. Right, right. Is does a huge, huge service to immigrant communities in the United States yeah. and non-English speaking communities. The idea of italicizing words in Spanish, for example, yeah, um, is something that's very much fallen by the wayside in recent years. And the idea is is that it others that's that Spanish. Whereas, like, yeah. we're in the United States of America, we don't have a, we don't have an official language. We don't have an, and isn't that interesting to even point that out? Because how many of our political fights are have their root in language? Oh, right? so many. It's how many incidents have we seen, or how many, you know, really kind of xenophobic or racist stump speeches have hinged on the idea of like having to interact with someone who doesn't speak like you do, you know, of having to hear Spanish on the phone. Yeah. Of having to, you know, of being in a restaurant. Like, all these horrific talking points that stem from language discomfort, you Mm -hmm. know? And so this stuff really does have, like, real-world stakes with regard to who's keeping the proper way to speak and how they're enforcing those rules on others. There's a term you and I were kind of batting back and forth earlier today, and it came... 
it sort of came up as a natural outgrowth of this conversation of these questions of power and it's almost it was almost like unnerving how like familiar the phrase like we all have used it you know before but you when you kind of put it in this context it's it takes on kind of a new meaning you can kind of see how this stuff all kind of interconnects politically and grammatically and how these two things kind of draw the same what's the phrase grammar nazi yeah grammar nazi we've all you we've all said it right it's a thing that we've all um you know, you applied to someone, you know, oh, that person's a grammar Nazi, you know, oh, you know, I'm a great, people call themselves that in a yeah. way that like it's, is, it's a night, it's a signifier yeah, of your, you of know, your, your polish, of your, yes. you know, of your rigidity to certain rules. And I guess like off the cuff, it just doesn't feel like it's quite an accident that when you think of, I mean, you know, this is a book podcast, we're not going to get off the rails here, but like when you think of like what, Nazism is and what like really strict rules related to who gets to say what and who gets to um, you know how you speak a certain way and like in what manner like you can see how there's a certain there's a certain resonance there you know that Mm -hmm. I think is worth pushing back on it it, because it it once again it kind of plays with that idea of political power associated with grammar and language in a way that I think that anyone working in books and language needs to be aware of, you know? Yeah, I mean, you you put it really well before we started recording this podcast that the Nazis, the real Nazis, the ones that existed in World War II and the ones that exist today have a real express goal of creating a white ethno state. Mm. And so to take that idea of that that white ethno state and bringing it into grammar so casually is really really bad it's also not an accident that the people who would like associate that way currently have such a they've got kind of this like weird fascination with like classics you know like greek roots latin like there's there's kind of like this weird strand of like classicism in like modern extreme right wing thought, you know, because they kind of view it as like this foundational thing that is worth preserving. Um, but yeah, no, it's just it's something to think about, I think, because and again, this is, you know, I, I almost feel bad like framing this around, you know, this one person's book because this isn't really like I, you know, this isn't really about him or his book. It's but it's this question of when we create, when we use grammar as, a, as something other than just a means of, you know, working with our own writing, which is sort of the argument this review makes, that this book isn't actually a style guide. It's a means of feeling like you're being signaled to, you know, in a specific way. Like, no one would use this Dreyer book as a means of actually cleaning up their writing. You know, they were using it as a way to kind of smile along with the anecdotes. Which you know? is okay, Which is I great. Guess. No, it's fine. It's like, it's, I'm sure, like, I... As long as we're not claiming that people reading this book are anything yeah. other than like middle or upper class white Americans, <laughs> you never know who's gonna who's who picks up this stuff. But like, it's it's just an interesting. That's what I would say. It's just an interesting question with all this stuff, and there's really it's really worth being careful with who we start calling the guardians or the custodians or the gatekeepers or the enforcers. And you can see, you can hear it, right? Like, you can hear the authoritarianism ramp up with each one of these words. You know what I mean? Like, there's a certain, I don't know. There's I, there's a big difference between focusing on precision and clarity specifically yeah. for your audience yeah. and trying to be, like, aggressive with your grammar. Like, I, okay, so there is a publishing company that... I'm familiar with and they have a mug uh-huh. like that that's you know oh, shown yeah, up yeah, on a yeah, little yeah. bit of social media yeah. and like yeah. I've seen it in person and it says and it's just a mug uh-huh. but it's it's something that's really really popular on Etsy I see it all the time I've on seen t-shirts. it a bunch too yeah I've seen it on mugs I've seen it on notebooks etc but what it says is I'm silently correcting your grammar yeah and like I've seen how, that I've seen that my bet our listeners have seen that mug a bunch how too how damaging and like how alienating would that be for somebody who is a new creative or just learning how to write their book or trying to do that like it's the first draft fuck it like whatever like i'm gonna try to get my creativity out like 
how damaging is that for or coming from a new language or something right like how horrible is that from an expert in this business to be saying i'm silently correcting you (laughs) it's terrifying you know there is such a strand and that and that isn't there is this weird like if you look at like book culture and especially like book online culture there is like this weird strand of like anal retentiveness that gets celebrated. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Like it's the grammar thing. It's the, you know, I guess most. I guess mostly it's grammar. But there is like this celebration of the idea that you know you're the one who knows what to do with all the you know grammatical elements. Right. And and not only that, but you're relishing the fact that those around you do not. It's just and, another way to, like. It, it makes you feel as good as an individual, but what it's really doing is it's just reinforcing white superiority. It's just interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, I don't know. I think that it's just one of those things where I think every every example we've talked about today, whether it's this book, whether it's that mug, whether it's all these things, they all they all sort of come from, I think, good places. Truth, tr- Truly, I do. I think that... All of this stuff is kind of designed to be very celebratory of writing culture and being interested in precision is a good thing. Exactly, but it's and so I would happily take this conversation up with any of these parties and just say like, let's talk about how, you know, these things can be used, you know, as not a means of exclusion, not a means of like, you know, the anecdote you say like, you know, that you know that mug like, it's just. And, you know, it's not even the mug as much as the sentiment. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just this idea that people are being policed on their grammar, you yeah. know, to in a way that might hurt their professional relationships, might prevent them from feeling as... Com- you know, I don't know. I've even it's- had authors that come to me as an agent and yeah. say, do I need... Like, I have dyslexia. Do I need to pay to have my book copy edited before I submit it to agents? Well, that's a big fight right now. A lot of people yes. are talking about that. Yes, yeah. and the answer is hell no. Of course not, yeah. Like, if, if, if you are submitting to an agent and they can't deal with the fact that your book yeah. isn't going to be pristine and copy right. edited because you have a learning disability yeah. and just not pay attention to your to your writing at all. Yeah. Like they're a bad agent. Yeah. So let's let's actually because that is a topic of conversation I've seen bubble up from time to time on in writer writer groups that I talk to in, you know, online forums and kind of discussions you see, you know, I think I've seen a few agents kind of tweet about yeah. line editing and stuff before. Like, I would just say, you know, you don't need to have, and because obviously a lot of writers listen to this show, so it's it's maybe worth kind of pointing out. You don't need to have your manuscript line edited to submit. You don't. Not at all. There is only but, one type of error that bothers me in a submission. What's that? And it's an error that pulls me out of the book because I it, it muddles my understanding of the text. Yeah, no, there's certainly like a... A responsibility on the author's part to write a clean enough book that it's not distracting. I think right. that's fair. But like, if every but, single the in your book is T E H instead a, of T H E, then like, I yeah. still know what that means. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. it's it's yeah, yeah. It's it's just one of those things that I think everybody's so worried that if they misspell one word, then they're out. Right and. People who you want to be working with are people that take a inclusive look on language and they won't care. Yeah. I mean, it's someone's, it gets, I mean, going back to, (laughs) we've kind of free ranged all over the place, which I think is good, but going back to like the submission fee thing that I was talking about up front, like it's expensive to hire a freelance line editor for your book. You know, like that cannot be an expectation for people to do that. And so it should be fine. Like, you know, there, there's someone in house when you're getting published whose job it is. Like, you know, luck, if you're lucky someday, Benjamin Dreyer will be, you know, copy editing your manuscript and it'll be, it'll come out looking clean and good and ready. But no, I don't think that there is an expectation, you know, query-wise. Or I, I say query-wise as in, like, submission-wise. But, like, at that stage, you don't need to have written pristine copy. But I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, it's just this question of, in both the topics, actually, in a way that I didn't even think they were going to connect when we kind of put them next to each other. But 
just this question of accessibility, you mm-hmm. know, and like making sure that um, people who would who are creating worthy things, who are adding useful, you know, contributions to, you know, the literary scene are not being excluded based on some sense of outdated gatekeeping, you know. I want to transition us now to, because we were talking a little bit about first drafts and early drafts. Sure. Uh, something that I know will infuriate you, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. which is that Drake, the <laughs> Grammy Award winning uh, superstar formerly on the Canadian television soap opera for teens, this Degrassi. Is my, <laughs> this is one of my favorite transitions we've ever had. Wow. Uh, uh-huh. One of Drake's notebooks when uh-huh. he was on Degrassi from 2002 to 2005. Oh, I'm familiar. Don't uh, worry. Well, I mean, he was on for longer <laughs> than that, but this particular notebook is from that time period. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it consists of 20 to 25 pages. So, like, one like eighth of an actual so hold, notebook hold on, size. Hold on. We've got it. So, just so I understand the object we're yes. talking about here notebook of Drake's. Yep. A little Aubrey's. Yep. 25 pages yep. from his Degrassi years. Yep. Degra- I don't even say it, Degrassi. You know, I think I'm going to say Degrassi. can email the podcast at printrunpodcast. It's Canadian, <laughs> so like Degrassi? Like, whatever. Hmm. It doesn't matter. Um, it's being sold for ter- $32,000. <laughs> five. Yeah, like almost $33,000. Uh Really good. So much money for like 25 pages of uh, full songs, verses, and random thoughts. Yeah, can't, I love all those complex, you know, lyrically sophisticated Drake lyrics, you know, scrawled I, on a notebook page that we need. <laughs> I like a so, so hope that there's just like a doodled like penis in there yeah. somewhere. No, how, how could there not be? <laughs> um, man. 32,000 32, for his little notebook. For 25 pages. Wow. That is like a grand and a half per page. Yeah. That's insane. Whew, man. Um, yeah, so donate to the Patreon. We have to make a purchase. <laughs> um, so. We sure do. <laughs> this is imperative that yeah. we own this. Yeah, we don't have that kind of money yet. But <sighs> All right. Let's do a Tulune It May Concern. Yes, please. Because I think this one is going to be less infuriating. Yeah, hope so. Than, than Drake's uh, being $32,000 richer. Okay, I'll read it. Dearest, darlingest loon. That I is love nice. that. Yeah, that's nice. Um, that's a nice way to lead your letters. Uh, we like reading that. We like that a lot. <laughs> anyway, here we go. In my teen years and early 20s, I was part of a forum roleplay community based on a popular YA fandom that shall remain nameless. For the uninitiated, this involves me creating a character and then writing from that character's POV, putting them in situations I agreed upon with the other writers, each of us taking turns posting a few hundred words at a time. Over the years, I became very close with several of the people I met on this site and wrote hundreds of thousands of words with them. I became very close with one man in particular, and for years we spent most of our free time writing together back and forth and coming up with various plot lines and new characters to play with. We talked a bit in theory about co-writing something worth publishing, but never really pursued it. I always made it clear that I aimed to publish one day, and he never expressed much interest in writing in a professional capacity. We eventually had a falling out over a story I wrote that he didn't like. He ended up threatening to sue me if I ever published anything that featured his characters, which is obviously plagiarism and therefore not something that would happen. However, I poured a lot of my creative energy into coming up with ideas for us, including many ideas that I think would make for decent novels. Most of what we wrote was based on my own ideas, and the most we ever wrote together for a single plot idea was easily less than 10k between us. If I use my own plot and scene ideas, tweak my own characters, and come up with new characters of my own to take the place of my friends, is that okay? Some of the ideas were as vague as Meet Cute X and Setting Y featuring character of Z Race. It's easy to say just have new ideas, but much harder in practice, especially when so many of the ideas I have are largely still untapped. I'm worried that this is too much baggage for an agent to want to deal with. My current work in progress is based on an idea I came up with for which my friends and I wrote about 2,000 words three years ago. Do I have to trash it because of my college-era creative outlet? Am I going to be unagented forever if I don't come up with something that isn't lawsuit bait? Sincerely, sharing, not caring. 
I also Oof. like the snappy I sign like, off. Everybody's name. been doing that recently. It's been good. And we asked for it, <laughs> and then some people just ignored it, people and then other really, people really took to it. People have really embraced the advice column aesthetic of this portion of the show, and I do think appreciate that. That we would become an advice column. No, when we started this it's podcast, honestly, a terrible idea. But um, <laughs> it was your idea. <laughs> Laura, most of my ideas are bad. Um, what do you think of this? Okay, so I think this is a really specific question uh-huh. with specific context that can be, for the listeners at home, can be broadened out to, to cover like critique partners um, and people that you brainstorm with and people that you work with in a creative manner, okay? So a lot of this gets down to copyright uh-huh. and copyright law. Let's just put it this way. Um, most of this stuff, sharing, not caring, is not lawsuit worthy. However, people can do dick moves like Eric and I have learned. Like they can, uh, file frivolous lawsuits basically just to be like nuisances, um, and take up lots of your money. So it's a valid concern. So we're hearing you. We're Mm -hmm. hearing you. Mm -hmm. Um, but here's the thing. If you've been doing this over a website, you probably are doing most of this, um, most of this work over writing, over email. Yeah. And so, if you have these emails saved, or if you have them archived in some sort of way, go get them mm-hmm. because that's important. Because if you're coming towards, like, if theoretically, if somebody, and I'm thinking worst case scenario, I don't at all think that this is gonna happen. Mm-hmm. But if somebody came after you and said you stole my idea and you could produce like a G chat or something that had, what about this? And that's the idea that you put into your book. Yeah. You're golden. Yeah. You're fine. As soon as something is put in a preservable format, it's copyrighted. Yep. Okay? So you're probably fine. Um, I My big thing is that, like, you also can't copyright ideas. Right. In, in the same way that you copyright words. And so that's why I think, like, this idea of um, changing these, you know, changing these placeholders yeah. and stuff, it should work fine, right? Like, that seems like that's the sort of situation yeah. where you can reduce this down to plot, like, you know, characterless or non-specific plot archetypes in a way that wouldn't be copyrightable, you know? Right, and you can also, like, especially if you're working in, like, YA or you're yeah. working in speculative fiction or even, like, romance, thriller, mystery, etc., um, you are working in... A, a genre that is highly trope driven. Yeah. So that idea of meet cute X in setting Y featuring character Z, like that is so vague and so based on the inner workings of this entire genre that that's also not copyrightable. So like the big thing is that you really, really, really change the the other character the other person's contributions. Don't take any of their contributions. Keep your own, um, but completely rewrite them. So that 2,000 mm-hmm. words, throw them out. I mean, don't throw them out. Like, save them for record-keeping purposes. Save them for inspiration. I mean, Sure. Save <laughs> but, like, yeah. like, the thing is, is as long as the sentence structure, the specifics of the characters, like, all of that, if you're just getting the core of the ideas and the plots and how the characters interact, um, you should be fine. Mm. You should be fine. And so one of the things that I see a lot in in publishing is people going, well, I ask, okay, well, do you have critique partners? Have you, have you baited this? Have you showed it to anybody? And a lot of people, right when they're starting in this business, say, no, I'm worried about people stealing my stuff, mm-hmm. which is... Not an unreasonable concern if you spent a couple of years working on a project. Yeah. Um, it's not unreasonable, okay? Yeah. But what you need to understand is that when you send written words to somebody else, you've already copyrighted mm-hmm. it, okay? Yep. Yep. You also, like, you have that data, and they're like the same way that you can't copyright titles you can't copyright ideas so like if you're writing a romance novel about a small town baker who falls in love with a fireman um somebody else will do that you can't sue them for for copying your idea what you can sue them for is an exact paragraph or something very 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 close um and there are 
if you have really, really specific concerns and you want to look beyond just this three paragraph question that you sent to us, I'd recommend going to the Authors Guild and talking to somebody there just Mm -hmm. to kind of do your due diligence. But it sounds like you're in a right spot. Yeah. It sounds like anybody listening who are working with critique partners and that sort of thing, like the idea is... Um, with critique partners, even if they, they're working on your book with you and they say, okay, you have a plot hole here, what about X? Um, the, the implicit understanding, and you can get this in writing beforehand, is that if they give you any plot ideas specific to your story, you can use them without recrimination. Sure. Um, and so that's not to say that all of you need to be deeply, deeply <clears throat> paranoid, Hopefully um, you're not with critique partners. No, you know? no, no. You should be open. Like it's a, it's it. Writing doesn't yep. need to be isolating and horrible. Um, Eric. If you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But okay. But so as a writer, I have critique partners. That's true. And I have these people that I share work with, and I would just say like if you're in a place preemptively, and obviously you do, you know, you take these precautions because things come out of nowhere. But like, if you're in a place where you even feel that sense that maybe something is amiss or that you should want to talk about this legal mm-hmm. stuff, maybe just find some different critique partners. Yeah. You know? Like, it's a process that I think can steer clear of this pretty easily. Um, and yeah. this obviously is is, sep- is separate from the email, you know, we just read. But, um, yeah, no, but the point is, like, you know, if you need, if you do need, you know, specific language or something, like the author skill is great for that, you know. And, and it's also worth mentioning that these ideas were born out of another writer's sandbox, right? Yeah. Like these yeah. are what essentially is a, like a fan fiction role play community based on an existing YA property. And so this author, I'm sure, Eric, is taking their due diligence and making sure that their ideas that were born out of that fan fiction-y time mm-hmm. has transitioned into something brand new. Yep. And so just do the same thing with yep. these other characters. And, like, I don't know, like, maybe it's too much to ask that you didn't actually tell this person who you really are. I don't know. You probably yeah. did. But, like, maybe yeah. you didn't. And maybe they'll never know. And then you don't have to worry about it. So to get to the last bit of this question before we sign off here, the question becomes, is this too much baggage for an agent? I would say no. No. This feels pretty simple. And even if it wasn't simple, like, we'd figure it out, you know. And maybe, you know, you and I, Laura, we work at a boutique agency. We work at a very personal – we work at an agency, and I think you and I in our own personal list kind of pride ourselves on really, like – trying to work with you know we do the legwork you know like and so like a we little, have a lot of one-on-one time yeah, exactly like a little bit of baggage you know and stuff it doesn't really bother us as much but i think that something like this is true of most agents like this to me does not scare me it doesn't scare me in an industry sense like this is something you work through especially if you've written something good and i hear that this sort of circumstance is surrounding it we figure it out i will know? say that when you come to the point of signing a contract with a publisher. Mm -hmm. There is a clause in every single publishing contract that is Mm non-negotiable that makes you have to certify that this is 100% your creative property and your work. And so as long as you would feel comfortable signing that contract, saying so, um, then I would say you're you're okay. Um, One thing that you also sign is that if anybody were to levy a lawsuit against you once, you know, this publisher publishes this book, then you would kind of be responsible for that. So mm-hmm. so really what that means is it's not to just throw you under the bus, um, although it is to protect the publisher. But what it really means is that we want you to be really sure. Um, publishers have ways of protecting themselves um, and protecting their bottom line when, like, plagiarism, for example, is brought out into the open. Yeah. Uh, which mostly involves not publishing the book. And as long as you are in a situation where you would feel comfortable, like, entering into that legal agreement in that mm-hmm. way, um, agents should be totally yeah. fine That's with, this, with like, the complicated situation you're in. And if you're really, really worried when you sign with an agent, you can talk about it with them on the call and you can say, here are these 2,000 words, here is the book, make your own choices. Don't, like, lead with this in the query, no, right no, no, away. No. Like, only... <laughs> this is call stuff. Like, yeah, yeah this is this is minimum yeah. call stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's 
it's good professional courtesy to yeah. tell an agent that this is something that's the case. Not not that I think that this is an issue or a problem, but it's definitely something to, you know, get out in the open just in just because of honesty purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, feel free, like, just just make sure everything's documented. Put it on a safe drive. Print it out. Keep yeah. it in a folder. Hopefully you'll never have to look at it again. Right. Exactly. And that's it. Um, so with that, Godspeed, good luck on your agent search. I'm sorry that you've been uh, all a flutter over this nonsense from this falling out a couple of years ago. But I hope it all turns out well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that your book does gangbusters. Sure will. And so um, we're going to leave you today with our well wishes. Eric needs to get home before it starts snowing. <laughs> Is it snowing? Again, Can you see out there? Is no, it, snowing it said it would start at 9 p.m. Oh, so we're, we're okay. okay. We're You'll safe. be home by then. All right, good. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us on this, our 93rd episode of Print Run. Remember to send us your queries, your first pages, your questions, etc. to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye.